Welcome to This Artistic Life. On this podcast, we sit down with professional artists of all disciplines to talk about their journeys, what inspires them, and their unique perspectives from life off the beaten path. Brought to you in part by Artist Relief Tree, a relief fund for artists affected by cancellations due to COVID-19. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. Today's guest is Richard Carsey. Richard is best known as the conductor and music director of Disney on Classic, a multimedia concert tour in Japan, and his work on Broadway as the conductor of the Phantom of the Opera at the Majestic Theater. First off, thank you for taking the time to uh, be on this artistic life. It's We've been working on having you on some version of my podcast for far too long, and now it's actually... <laughs> coming to fruition well i'm really glad to be here it's a great it's a great way to end 2020 which is of course yeah. a, a difficult year uh so talk to me a little bit about um how is broadway looking right now what is is there a buzz happening about how things are going to come back how people can pivot um i mean it's such a massive industry in new york city that to just hit pause on broadway in general seems ludicrous uh, but we understand the safety precautions behind it. But um, what are people saying now that we have a, a vaccine on the horizon, um, of which is an unknown time frame? But what's the what's the buzz? Right. I mean, everything is really uh, everything is conjecture. And I have to say that I'm not sort of on the inside track of it. Right. Um, you know, during during this time during the pandemic, I've been in Connecticut, which is where my home is. So I've not been necessarily privy to all of the ins and outs i am i will say honestly i'm glad that it's not part of my job to make those decisions um and i think there's a feeling and this is a perception i think there's a feeling of okay well who's going to be first who's going to step out onto the ice and try a protocol and see what happens i know that for regional places it's maybe a little bit easier because the um, first of all, the visibility is a little bit different, but also the financial structure is different. I did one concert this year in the United States after all of this happened, and it was in Lincoln, Nebraska at the Lead Center. And they had come up with a protocol for doing, you know, uh, socially distanced seating in a 2,500 seat house, more or less. They probably sold 600 seats. Mm -hmm. And that's was and that was their sellout. I mean, that was their goal. Uh, they booked a concert that was just uh, me and a singer, Derek Davis, who had been one of the phantoms on the tour. Um, there were only three people backstage. We'd all been, you know, very thoroughly tested and we were all wearing masks the whole time. That was a way to do that. But that's not Hamilton. That's not phantom. Yeah. That's not any of these shows in spaces that are much more confined um certainly backstage spaces are much more confined um demand having you know a larger cast on stage and are financially dependent on a larger percentage of a house than just a third mm -hmm. um so there's you know there are tiers of problems and there's tiers of questions i know that you know, things are kicking up in London uh, now, and I know that all eyes are going to be on that in our industry. What's going to work? What's not going to work? Um, 
what no one wants to be is the first one out there making a mistake, mm -hmm. you know, where there's some major super spreader event or something like that. And thankfully the advent of a, of a vaccine is going to, I think is really, really going to be a game changer. And that's going to decide how these timelines are going to work. So what have you been doing in the meantime to keep yourself busy? You said you did, you had one concert this year. Um, have you been working on any other projects or coaching online? And what else have you been doing to keep yourself busy? Mm -hmm. Well, at the beginning, uh, I think we all thought that, okay, well, this is going to be a month. This is going to be just a, a hiatus. <laughs> uh, because it was unimaginable. I mean, what, what the scale of what has occurred, I, no one could fathom or or even believe uh mm -hmm. on the on the page if someone had scripted this he would definitely have gone back and said we need a rewrite no one will go for this um <laughs> so i think at the beginning like everybody else i was like okay i'm just gonna take a you know it's gonna be a little vacation i'm gonna have a little time off it'll be great and at the beginning i really sank into um playing again i both of my degrees are in piano and it's something that i rarely have the opportunity to do just because I want to do it. So being here in my home in Connecticut with a grand piano was just heaven at the beginning, you know, really just hours and hours and hours a day. And I was practicing again and I was playing well again, not just faking. <laughs> it, it wasn't audition playing, it was like for real. Um, and uh, that really was, and, and that was great. And I found that I grew a lot and I woke up with enthusiasm and, and goals. And that was a wonderful mm. chapter of this whole thing. And then, um, and then I really wanted to have other, other interactions. And I yeah. uh, started uh, pursuing more coaching. I got a website, which I'd always threatened to do and never done. <laughs> Um, and uh, so I you know, made a website for myself and I'm very proud that that happened. RichardCarsey.com if you want to check it out. Um, Excellent. Yes, well placed there. Um, and I started working um, with some friends of mine who I had mentored on a project for Northern Sky Theater, which is in Wisconsin, uh, which is in Door County, Wisconsin. They do, they produce all of their own material they produce three original musicals every year and that's what they present um and i had mentored uh a husband and wife uh couple steve and corey kovacs on a piece that they had written that was produced uh about a year and a half ago uh, called we like it where and they called me at the beginning of the pandemic and they were like look do you want to try writing something should we try to do something together so we've been i never fancied myself a playwright but it's you know why not uh why not try and i have to say that it's been uh an education in itself mm -hmm. um i do find that as because i've spent so much time in this i understand structure um mm. maybe a little bit better than i had even thought i did yeah. um but the uh, sort of departure into into imagination and building characters and um, making something hang together—it's been a really, really expensive 
fun. It's been frustrating. It's been all the things that you want art to be. Yeah. You know, what have been some of the challenges? I mean, normally you work with other people's music. Um, you, most of your job is interpreting other people's music and bringing it to life. And what are some of the challenges of, of creating something from scratch that you're finding personally? Uh, specifically when it comes to, I don't, when it comes to writing music, that's where I actually start getting more nervous mm -hmm. um, because I'm so used to evaluating other people's music um, and, and interpreting other people's music and making things, you know, my job as a conductor is to make it all work, to make it all hang, hang together. Yeah. Um, and sometimes the thornier, the better, you know, like, Yep. <laughs> yeah. You give me some flawed piece and I'll try to and I'm going to give it my all. And, and right. You know, but uh, sitting down at the piano with nothing in front of me has been very, very humbling. And um, it's much easier for me to sit down and write script pages, to sit down and write lyrics, because I don't have that same critic in the back of my head. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But sitting there, you know, there's the devil on my shoulder when I'm sitting there at the piano trying to write something. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's that that weird process of if you start to if you've always worked with other people's product for lack of a better term and then you decide to make your own similar genre product, there's that judgmental part that's always there. That like you said that that critique that's always constantly critiquing your own stuff, but pushing yourself really outside the box kind of lets you do whatever you want and then assess it and tweak it and edit later. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to allow yourself the opportunity to fail. Yeah. And, and that falling down and, and failing and doing something that doesn't turn out the way that you had initially hoped. That's part of the process. That's part of the creative process. Um, and it's the part of the creative process that even you know, even I, as the music director of, if it's a piece that's already been written, it's a part of the process that I don't see, mm -hmm. you know, I don't see what everybody went through. I mean, I've worked on, you know, a, a dozen new works and have seen the blood, sweat and tears that go into that. Um, some of which have come to fruition and some of which after years just didn't. Right. Um, but I've never jumped into that part of the pool just completely on my own. And it's, I'm, I'm glad that I'm doing it. And that's been a real growing opportunity uh, during this time. And you, you mentioned in our, our pre-recorded dialogue that um, it's interesting kind of having to set your own schedule and your own goals and your own deadlines for that. Did you give yourself kind of a regimen or has it been kind of a see how it goes as it goes kind of scenario? Well, <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, uh, we can talk to my therapist about this too, actually. Uh, <laughs> Barbara has lots of insight. Um, She'll be my I, next call. <laughs> I, I, totally. I mean, she's, she would be a great interview just so, just incidentally, but um, yeah. Uh, internal motivation, external, external, extrinsic motivations. Um, as, as a conductor, uh, especially when it comes to theater, there is a timeline that's already been, you know, I have, I may have input on the timeline, but opening night is opening night. Mm -hmm. um, there are this many weeks of rehearsal. There's this much material to, to accomplish. And then there are untold um, 
challenges that are going to happen, but they're in that time period. Yeah. That's when it's going to happen. That's, and I love that. And I've learned to uh, thrive on it. I've learned to work my way through uh, the stress that is inherent in that with some grace. And Mm -hmm. that I think is part of what I bring to a process. All right, now you take away that deadline part. Um, and I, this is what I've done for almost 30 years now, is dealt with within those kinds of deadlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, either as an actor or as a conductor, as an artistic director, there was always a board meeting that was coming up that things had to be prepared for. As a student, there was always, you know, there's a test date that is going to happen having to impose those things on myself has been the most humbling experience uh, that has not involved death in my life. <laughs> well, I'm glad it hasn't involved death yet. It has not. <laughs> um, another kind of timeline. But um, yeah, so I, I, try to maintain a a schedule for myself of when I'm going to work, what I'm going to do. And the days when that goes according to plan are great days. And then there's other Mm -hmm. days where I just bridle against it. People talk a a lot uh, during this COVID pandemic isolation time about self-care uh, I never really knew what that meant. But I do think that a lot of it has to do with managing your intrinsic motivations. Yeah. And your intrinsic expectations um, in a, in the kind of way that you would for someone who you actually loved and cared for. Are you, are you working with a, a producer that's kind of attempting to give either due dates for anything or is it 100% self-motivation. It's kind of been a 100% self-motivation. They're like, look, we'll give you a reading when you have something ready. And we actually have done, uh, we've done a first reading. Uh, the show itself, I won't get into all the details, but it's called Not Even Remotely. Um, and the short version of it is it's about a, uh, a theater company that was planning to present the largest work in in their history, uh, like a regional theater. They were doing their own adaptation of Frankenstein as a musical. And now they are showing us excerpts from it, but using only two people. Okay. Uh, yeah, the, the lead actor and the director are the two people who we're seeing. Excellent. Almost and, and a show within a show kind of mentality. It's, it's very meta. Um, Love that. And yeah, so we had a first reading about a month ago um, and it went really, really well. I was expecting to just hate every second of it and I really didn't. Um, then we did, and that was a great motivator to do like rewrites. That's the that's where the juice is. That's the good. Yeah. So there's another one coming up the first week of January and then we'll find out whether it's something that we want to persevere with and go into production with and see we talk a little bit about um, defining our successes uh, and in a, a self 
motivated project like this, um, those little things can be such a shot of adrenaline, such a, a boost to uh, the creative process. Um, I know when I'm when I'm working on a significant project, there are times where I've just let my projects kind of sit on the back burner and then I lose the drive, I lose the motivation or whatever. Oh. And then they'll email me back and be like, hey, did you want to sit down and do that? Because they're looking for something to do. They're right. looking for any sort of engagement uh, with other people who understand their artwork. And so I say, okay, yeah, fine. And then I finally shoot it. And once I'm in the room and working with the individual and then editing the photos, then all of a sudden I'm ready to book like another 15 people. Right and there. I want yeah. to get it. Right there, yeah. And I have to, and then I look at those individual points. It's like those little successes of knowing that a, a 20 minute shoot gave me an image that I adore for the series makes me want to push forward. But it's so easy to just let it percolate and never come to fruition. <laughs> oh, totally. That, that little voice that's in your head that says, oh, tomorrow will be fine. It, and mm -hmm. and, and I, I think that that is relatively universal. I'm sure there are a few folks out there that don't wake up with lethargy sitting at the end of their bed. But I think for the most part, we all, you know, it's like I, I, I've got my first Apple watch and it has the, um, you know, those, the, the rings, you know, yeah. the, the stand ring and the movement ring and the exercise ring that are there. <laughs> And it's the, so, all the things that remind you you're being lazy. Absolutely. And like at the end of the day, like today, my rings are closed. Like I ran, it was great. Um, at the end of the day, when your rings are closed, it's terrific. But I have to say, God, you wake up in the morning and there's no more ring. Like it's at zero again. And I think there's a lot of parts of our life that are a little bit like that. Like, oh my God, yeah. we have to start this thing all over. I have, I'm co-producing uh, two projects for a couple of people right now. And the reason I'm involved in the project is because it's easier often to have a third party. I'm working with somebody right now on a recital series and she basically just needed a project manager for lack of a better term, which is, that's a producer's job. It's basically being the project manager. And so I stepped in and said, I'd be happy to help produce this with you. Um, what do you need? And she's like, I need the motivation to get started and I need deadlines. I was like, okay, not a problem. So I said, if this is going to be a research thing that um, is going to have uh, both music that is is printed as well as like a lecture that can go with a recital series and everything, um, the research portion needs to be the beginning. You need to do that before you do anything else. So I want the research ready by January. And this, you know, we had our meeting at the beginning of December. And she texted me today and was like, the research part is done and sent me a couple of screen grabs from her computer. I think Leonard Bernstein had a, there's a quote, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but the point of it, I think, is, is the spirit of it is right, which is that um, art is uh, the combination of inspiration and not quite enough time. Yeah. And our problem right now is we got nothing but time. Nothing but time. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've woken up during this pandemic and said, what do I have to do today? Oh, technically nothing. Because I can't. <laughs> um, I got asked to conduct a film with a film with live orchestra. 
Mm. So it was the the animated Beauty and the Beast, the original animated Beauty and the Beast with a live orchestra. So mm -hmm. yeah, as you're conducting, you're listening to, you know, you've got a click track and you've got these visual cues that happen in front of you called punches and streamers. I'd never worked with any of this material before. I'd never done any of it. But I was asked to do this and I was asked to do it in Japan. I have a relationship with an orchestra there. The the scale of it was such that it was at an it was at an eleven thousand seat arena, and Alan Menken was coming. Alan Menken was the opening act. Nice. <laughs> and in addition to all of that, the numbers were going to be performed still with the film going, but were going to be performed live in Japanese by Japanese film and television stars. It's the same kind of thing that they do at the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah, they were, you know, staged and choreographed. But then you would bleed, and then you would bleed right back into the, you know, you'd stop for applause, they'd bleed right back into the film with all the underscore. It was just a huge project of something that I'd never done before. And it was super fussy and super detailed, which I kind of like, I sort of get off on. I was so incredibly disciplined about preparing for that. And it all, you know, it all worked. I mean, like I knew how long it was going to take. I knew it was going to take the two months that I had. I don't know that I would have had the wherewithal in my 20s to have had the discipline to be able to make that occur. So as a final, as a final thing right before COVID happened, you know, I, there was one other project that happened right afterwards. But as a big, big push and something I'd never done before that was of a huge scale and uh, it was so satisfying. But it was in Yokohama, and when you stood on the top of my hotel, you could look out into the distance and see Yokohama Harbor. And do you remember that cruise ship? Yeah. That had all these people with COVID on it, and they didn't know what to do with them, and there were like 50 Americans or something, and all these other international people. Well, there they were. There was a <laughs> ship out in the harbor. It was like COVID was just waiting. Just right there. It was right there. Um, yeah, it feels, it's, it's crazy that it all happened that way, but yeah, you know, I, overall, I, how was, um, how was working in Japan? I mean, not counting the, the, where COVID took and everything else, but prior to that, um, mm -hmm. how was working in Japan as an American? Um, I really love it. And, uh, the project that I do there is a, uh, project called Disney on classic. It is a semi-staged concert with enormous visual elements that happen as well. Um, it's a 65 piece Japanese orchestra, all Japanese, uh, eight American singers and me. Um, and we are there in the, and, and it changes the, the concert changes for each of the tours that we do. So there's a two month tour in the spring and there's a three month tour in the fall. I've been involved with that for the last two two years and been the conductor there. So working with a Japanese orchestra is just, it's its really fantastic. And you realize, I mean, they speak a little bit of English and I now speak just the tiniest shred of Japanese. Um, but you realize how little you actually have to say and how much you can show. Mm. I think I've never been a better conductor because I've never been more dependent on my stick and my body yeah. to make 
this happen. You don't you don't explain it. You actually you embody it and you show it. So you mentioned earlier that you your degrees are in piano. Every time that I think of a, a piano major, I think predominantly of classical music. Yeah. Um, did you did you have a focus in classical music? Did you when did you wander into um, musical theater being more of your bread and butter? Mm -hmm. um, I'd always adored musical theater. That was always a big part of what I did. But as a pianist, I was trained as a classical musician. So I assumed, OK, well, that's what you know, that's what I'm going to end up doing. Uh, and I I had an assistantship working with the opera program at Indiana University, and I really enjoyed doing that, although I enjoyed the every once in a while when they would do a musical more. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so I really thought, OK, well, I'm going to be that's what I'll do. I'll play for an opera company like I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll be a rehearsal pianist or repertoire for an opera company never and conducting never crossed my mind. That was what other mm -hmm. what somebody else did. Um, and this was long before collaborative piano degrees were a thing. Right. And I did not love that repertoire enough. Like the mm -hmm. collaborative piano repertoire. I just couldn't imagine like playing Schubert for the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, I just couldn't imagine it without the scale of it. Mm -hmm. The storytelling. That was what I responded to was yeah. how music served a story and how pace would make that work for those characters. That's what turned me on. And, um, and it's still what turns me on. Um, yeah. So I, you know, graduated from college and went and auditioned at some opera companies and all that kind of stuff and ended up back in Omaha. I was playing, I, played for opera omaha for a year and you know we drove the opera bus and played for all the seventh graders and you know <laughs> throughout a whole state uh and then i got my first job at the skylight opera theater in milwaukee wisconsin um they were doing a production of carmen a friend of mine was asked to play carmen she knew they didn't have a conductor and I was like, well, I don't know how to conduct. And she was like, they don't know that. Just, you know. <laughs> they don't know. That's awesome. Yeah, just, just ask. So I sent her resume and I got a call back saying, would you be interested in being a resident music director? Um, like doing, playing for rehearsals and doing, conducting three shows a year. First time I ever conducted was the first orchestra rehearsal for the first show that I did there. Meanwhile, that whole time in your head, you're like, are they going to ask? Are they going to ask? Are they going to ask? Oh, totally. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And the best teacher I've ever had, as far as conducting is concerned, is an orchestra. Mm -hmm. If they don't do what you, if they don't do what you're intending, it's you, it's not them. Yeah. Uh, and I really went with that as my this is how I'm going to learn how to do it. So what drew you to New York? Was it, was it the lights of Broadway? <laughs> <laughs> it was circumstance. Um, uh, yeah, I, New York was never really a goal mm. uh, for me. I did not. Um, yeah. I just couldn't picture myself really living there. Mm -hmm. And um I have to say, I, I really considered it uh, at the end of my 
graduate studies. So it would have been, you know, uh, in the late 1980s, which is ancient history now. Um, and I really, really considered it. And I'm really grateful that I did not do that, partly because as a gay man, uh, AIDS was so rampant in the city. Mm -hmm. It was so rampant everywhere, but I mean, particularly in New York. And I know who I was at that time of my life. I, I can't imagine that I would have survived. I was mm -hmm. so, I, you know, you're in your twenties, you're desperate to be loved. And I was wildly insecure. I know for sure. So, um, making that decision at that time was the best thing for me. Um, yeah. that wasn't the reason, but as I look back on it, I'm like, Oh, thank goodness. Cause that kid, that guy wouldn't have made it. Yeah. Um, and then I got, you know, I started working regionally and that was great. And I made a living. I mean, I don't make, you know, I owned a house. I, I had a life. I ran a company and um, it was through projects that brought me to New York. I worked on a piece called uh, A Minister's Wife that was done in Chicago at the Writers Theater and it got uh, picked up and brought to uh, Lincoln Center. So I came with that production and was there for about seven months um, with that project and then I started booking national tours they would always rehearse in new york um so i it began to be part of a part of what my how i made my living was spending time in new york and i began to know more people and feel more comfortable with the with the atmosphere mm -hmm. um and then i did the um you know seven eight years ago now i did the phantom tour when my time on the tour ended, I, um, when I decided to leave the tour, I had a little time off and then I managed to book a, a chair at Radio City Christmas show and did that, which was great. And right after that was over with, uh, they needed, um, they needed another person at Phantom on Broadway. And that was, that was how that happened. Nice. What, so you had two national tours, right? You yes, did? I did. I actually, there are three. I did um, Little House on the Prairie, the musical. Ooh. Yeah, uh, that's a story. Which started at the Guthrie. Uh, uh -huh. And uh, Francesca, Francesco Zambello directed it. Uh, before, it, this was pre-Little Mermaid. Uh, uh -huh. She directed it. And she had known me from the Skylight. When I, when she first, when I first got hired at the Skylight Opera Theater in Milwaukee, she was one of the two artistic directors of the place. And she's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. She is, she's the person, she's the reason I have a career. Mm. But she was the person, I'll never forget. I never met her in person, but her phone call was on a rehearsal break from Opera Theater of St. Louis, where she was doing something. She called me on a rehearsal break and I'd already done these interviews. And her question, her initial question on that phone call was, I have five minutes. Everybody says great things about you. What the mm, is so great about you? <laughs> Prove it call. Love it. Prove it call. 
and I talked and I think she asked maybe one more question. And then she was like, okay, my break's over. I got to go. And that night I got the job. Wow. Yeah. So she was directing that. She directed Little House on the Prairie, the musical, um, up at the Guthrie. And um, it people loved it. And it was one of the biggest hits they'd ever had. And then commercial producers got involved. And suddenly we were going, we were going to do a national tour, a pre-Broadway national tour. And Melissa Gilbert, who had played um, Laura on the television show, of course, at that time she was in her 40s. So she was Ma in the show. Um, and uh, so I got to travel around with her. It was my first time with like a star. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a great experience. She she was terrific. She worked super hard. Um, and it wasn't the greatest show in the world, but everybody, we, we all really tried hard. It was a great show for an 800-seat house. There you go. Yeah. It wasn't a great show for a 3,000-seat house. Yep. And that was the issue. Yeah. So I did that. Then I did the um, Lacage tour, um, the last half of the Lacage tour, the, the revival. And then I did the, the Phantom tour uh, mm -hmm. that went out seven years ago. What were some of the bigger differences between doing the Phantom Tour versus actually doing it um, at the Majestic in New York? Is it just the matter of just running nonstop, go, go, go? Um, uh, gosh. In terms of, um, you know, in the orchestra on the, on the road is smaller. So you only travel with four mm. people. And then you pick up another, I think we picked up another 13. It was like 17 pieces as opposed to the... 30 that there are at the majestic right. Right. um and every two weeks we, we never had less than a two-week sit down because the show was so big uh it just took that it just took too long to move it um which was great because you sort of got to settle in with your orchestra a little bit but um every two weeks you were preparing a new orchestra is that is which... it awkward to just constantly be picking up a new orchestra and that that high turnover um Awkward. I wouldn't say awkward is exactly the right word. I would certainly say it's it's just a little bit challenging. And I know that some conductors really hate it. Mm -hmm. um, I am that perverse person who likes the new blood in there. And you also did the um, you did the revival of Carousel as well, right? I did. I was one of the conductors for the revival of Carousel. Yeah. So I came right around the time that. Uh, all of the panic of tech uh, starts to set in and all of the questioning of is is this right? Is this wrong? Is there a different way? And there's a lot of voices in the room. And yeah. that was, you know, that was where I was. I loved that production. I loved that cast. Everything that it was, was a completely honest expression of what the um of what jack o'brien wanted it to be you know and i think for a lot of people it was really successful and you know as far as like an audience is concerned and right. for the people the the piece itself is so problematic now <laughs> yeah um i think 
that was the most interesting thing to experience was different audiences reactions to this as a piece they'd never seen before yeah yeah the most interesting conversation that i had about that i mean billy is an anti-hero billy bigelow um one of you know they have you have your love story with billy and julie for the first 20 minutes at the 22 minute mark you find you know time has passed and you find out that it's become an abusive relationship he's hit her and there's no backstory like billy has no backstory there's no right explanation there's no attempt to like what about his childhood made this out there's no flashback sequence you know there's nothing about that and the most interesting conversation i had was someone who said it was 1945 all these men had just come home from a war you didn't need a backstory to explain how a man gets lost and angry in his 20s we didn't have to tell the audience how that could happen they knew those they knew men like that and not necessarily men like that that beat their wives that's not what i'm saying mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. It was such a, a time period of, of, you know, it's my father's time period of you internalize your emotional states. You're, you're expected to just carry the load. Mm -hmm. Certain people yeah. can and certain people can't keep all of that inside. Billy's not a person who could. Right. And he has to face up to that at the end of the show. But some people in the audience in 2020, 2019, 2018, whatever it was at the time, gave up on the character immediately and i think that right. um you know and it's a built-in thing about these but right. my exactly. god i love that music so much it was uh it was <laughs> heaven it was heaven if i never ever get to conduct another show in my entire life you can never take that experience away standing there and conducting carousel with that orchestra and freaking Renee Fleming and I mean this cast I mean it was just on it was a dream it was just a as a conductor to stand there every night oh god it was a dream one of the best things that ever happened to me was that the first time you'd worked with Renee we went to college together <laughs> oh, you were at Eastman at the same time yes we were um I remembered of course she did not um we stood next to each other in choir back in the day back in the day yeah exactly. so the carousel happened while you were you were do, you were doing phantom you started phantom in 2015 mm -hmm. 14 mm -hmm. 15 yeah. so you were doing carousel and phantom simultaneously at one point yes they had given me um i talked with the folks at um phantom and there's four different conductors or at least that time there were four conductors that were there right. And, you know, I spoke to David Lyon, Kristen Blodgett, and uh, David Caddick about this opportunity that I had to be an associate over there at Carousel. And it was, you know, it was laid out where I was going to be conducting when, when Bet came back to do that eight-week stint or whatever it was, or nine weeks or however long it was. That's that pocket where they needed extra, an extra conductor over at Carousel. Gotcha. Um so it was a limited time thing and the folks at phantom i i owe them all so much because first of all they gave me the opportunity in the first place 
and then have been so gracious about being able to allow me to pursue other opportunities and still keep my foot in the door there. You know, and there were times when I would conduct the matinee of Phantom in the afternoon and go conduct Carousel in the evening, and I was living the life, man. <laughs> Gotta love the Broadway schedule of eight shows a week, man. <laughs> it's just yeah. it's brutal. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I sort of love it, but yeah, I, I think you kind of have to a little bit, and yeah. then uh, and then eventually you either get sick of it and move on, or um, it just becomes a lifestyle. <laughs> Right. And that is really kind of what this little COVID pocket of this pandemic pocket of time of isolation, it's allowed me to explore what it's, you know, what life is like without that. So my listeners would kill me if we didn't dive into at least a little bit about Phantom, as it is one of the most iconic productions um, of the 20th century, 21st century. Do you have highlights from working on this show um, that jump out? for you um or is there something special about um working on phantom because it's it's your longest single running or longest single production that you've worked on right oh yeah yeah i've done i've certainly conducted phantom more than i've ever conducted anything in my life i have to say in all honesty like i wasn't a phan fan of phantom mm -hmm. before the opportunity came to um to do it but for a conductor the whole thing is just catnip it's the orchestration is so great you're so the time flies you're so busy yeah it's the hardest little pocket of the show is the last like 15 minutes right once everything once you get to the phantom walking out to do past the point of no return as far as the music is concerned you really are past the point of no return i mean at yeah. that point from there to the end um is really it's challenging it's different with um it's got the most restative kind of action in it um which means that it's you know if an understudy is on as the phantom or if an understudy is on as Raoul, it you really have to really have to be on your toes mm -hmm. and really have to be a storyteller so my highlights almost always fall in that pocket of the show um just because it's so it's so hard and it's kind of an anything can happen thing yeah you know even though it's obviously very regimented and it's very laid out and and it's you know we're obviously we've rehearsed right um but there is the most margin for interpretation um that's in there and i love plugging into what an actor's going to do. Yeah. I mean, you've worked with so many cast members over the years. Uh, do you have anybody that, that jumps out that you've, um, that you've had a particularly good musical connection with? Um, somebody that was a, a real highlight to work with? Um, yeah. I mean, Ben Crawford is a dream for, for a conductor. Yeah. He's just an absolute dream of a human and he is so i i for you know for whatever reason with some with some artists you have a sixth sense about what they're going to what's going to happen next yeah um where the where they're going to require just a little bit more time for a breath where they're going to 
whether we're on a roll and the breadth is going to be slightly shorter than it was previously, what they're going to do with this word right before, you know, like he, it was a Vulcan mind meld with him from the first time we ever did it. I've been very fortunate to have worked with some, a lot of great guys. Um, I'd go back into it with any of them, but there is a, just a special personal musical connection uh, with Ben. I think he's extraordinary. Yeah. And the, the role vocally is very, very challenging. If it were a step higher, every tenor could do it. If right. it were a step lower, every baritone could do it. Yep. There it is. Nobody can really do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really a strain. Like the low notes are a strain for a tenor. The high notes are a strain for a baritone. And it's not like to do it in an audition, do it once, do it twice. No big deal. Eight shows a week over the course of several months. Mm -hmm. That's when it really starts to show. And that's yeah. what technique is. Yeah. Being able to figure out, okay, how do I work this? Speaking of, of technique when it comes to singers, what are your thoughts on this? I've seen a, a couple of shows over the last several seasons that um, where either they've brought in somebody who was more of a rock artist than a traditional um, musical theater singer. Um, and so, I mean, I've seen shows where it had, normally you'd had a very a very pure belt technique and instead of got like a rock scream um or that kind of stuff in some very traditional shows hey. um do you have any thoughts on kind of the the fusing of those two worlds or the bringing in the the guest stars that do that kind of thing does it detract for you at all or what are your thoughts um i do think it depends on the piece mm -hmm. um and it depends on the it depends on the artist and what they it how do i say this it is it's a piece of theater first it is a piece of theater first even when there's a star in it mm -hmm. even bet midler in hello Dolly. Mm -hmm. yes she was that the in the in the same way that uh that ethel merman or mary martin or even bernadette peters to a to a degree there there's always a, a part of themselves that is in the in the actual presentation like it's definitely bet midler as dolly but right. she was absolutely absolutely 1000 percent playing a role yeah the ones that don't work for me are the 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 few who sort of lose sight of that or never intended that to ever be the case in the first place mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. they're there to only do the thing that they do and character and relationship be damned. Yeah. I can tolerate a lot of reinterpretation. I can tolerate a lot of different kinds of voices. I'm interested in a lot of different kinds of voices um, attacking different material. I have preferences, but I don't mind exploring. Mm -hmm. What I do mind is treating theater not as a theater. Yeah, I could totally stand with you on that one. So one one question I always ask people who work in a performance art form, um, especially if they've done one piece for a long time, we as the audience members see a very specific perspective of a show. So I always have to ask, what is what is one thing um, 
about either working on Phantom or working in the Majestic or working in musical theater in general that that you enjoy that the audience doesn't see that we don't get to experience mm-hmm. kind of that like that peek behind the curtain. Sure. Um, for me specifically at at Phantom, and specifically because it's the majestic, there I have this little private moment that is just mine and mine alone, and I value it more than I can possibly say. It is the show doesn't start with a big the show doesn't start with an overture. Like mm-hmm. the conductor, you're going to be busy the whole rest of the time. But for the conductor, it's an easy start. You know, it's an easy start. The first ten minutes aren't are not that hard. The first fifteen minutes are not that hard. But at the very beginning, you're just standing there, mm-hmm. conducting a couple little things that are just. Um, they can do it on their own. I stand there every night at the majestic, and I think. Oh, it's going to make me emotional now. All those people who stood in that place, all those other conductors who stood there and looked at that stage, but it was, they were doing the music band or they were doing South Pacific or they were doing, you know, the act with Liza Minnelli or they were doing Mac and Mabel, you know, the hits and the misses. All of the effort and time and artistry and passion and um, frustration and all of it. Like it's right, I'm standing right there. That just knocks me out every time. That's never gotta get old. Uh, And I will never take it for granted. If I ever stand back there again. I never took it for granted, not one single time, ever. And I never will. Yeah. I think that's a perfect place to, to wrap up. Um, Thanks, man. This was so fun. Thank you so much. No, it was, it was a blast. And uh, we're, right, we're right about in time. If you're interested in contributing to Artist Relief Tree to help artists struggling with COVID-19 shutdowns, please visit artistrelieftree.com. This has been an episode of This Artistic Life. Find us on your favorite podcast apps and subscribe. Follow This Artistic Life on Instagram at This Artistic Life and on Twitter at Artistic Vita. For more information on today's guest, visit our website, thisartisticpodcast.com.